element in the development of so-called smart technologies is that of vision, where machines operating through camera-enabled devices capture, process and store information that is then enabled in different contexts. In many ways this develops on from established technologies of the cinema and photography, but in other important ways it has become profoundly extended through automation, artificial intelligence and image processing. This raises many ethical and social questions about what is changing in today's media ecology. Hello and welcome, my name is John Lynch and this is the Geomedia podcast from Castor University in Sweden. Today I talk to two researchers from Melbourne, Australia who have begun to think more deeply about these issues such as facial recognition technologies, autonomous drones, driverless cars and so on. Anthony McCosker and Rowan Wilkin published a book in 2020 titled Automating Vision, The Social Impact of the New Camera Consciousness, and I discussed with them something of what we should be thinking about in this area today. So thank you for both uh, being here today. I'm very interested then in this book, Automating Vision, The Social Impact of the New Camera Consciousness, in which you describe something of the range of uh, technological changes, which um, you argue then impact quite profoundly, I think, on, on sort of social relationships. So firstly, then, I'd like to start with this idea of, you say, the social impact of the new camera consciousness. What might we understand as the old camera conscious then, consciousness then if we want to think about this idea of you? Often within technological studies, we often have this idea that there is something new and everything is going to be different. So what, what shift are we looking at in terms of this? Yeah, it's a good question. The, um, probably the, the impetus for thinking about a new camera consciousness actually comes from philosophy from Gilles Deleuze, but... Um, but we were thinking about the early use of cameras, um, particularly in cinema, and the shift from um, stage performance to, to cinema um, brought about this change in the way that actors had to um, position themselves to speaking to an audience, from speaking to an audience to speaking to a camera. And um, there's a lot of stories about how difficult that was and the training that a lot of actors had to go through in, um, you know, in making that transition. And I think the, the phrase camera consciousness was, was um, coined around that time to, to address that, that sense of um, the awareness of the camera or, um, you know, staring too deeply into the camera and not being able to act to the camera. So not, make, not being able to make that transition to, thinking about what the camera does and how it positions positions you um, to, to an audience or, um, you know, um, yeah, records activities. There was, there was certainly lots of um, training programs and, you know, there was, there was a, a kind of um, a sense that this was something that you had to overcome. Okay. So, you know, this was, that was the traditional sense of the, of the term. Um, and, 
you know, we're really thinking about, well, how do we get from there to what we understand to be the, the issues that, that have just um, exploded around the use of CCTV, um, security cameras, um, cameras everywhere, ca cameras saturating every part of our, our lives and um, what it means to think about the way that we relate to, to cameras and to each other through cameras. So, yes, clearly we can see what we might call a, ch a, a, a change in um, mode of address, if you like, of, of the performer. Uh, in terms of, of cinema. And as I say, I teach a certain amount of film studies and the, you, you see that, that, as you say, you see that, that, that shift when in the early uh, recordings, uh, certainly documentary, et cetera, people look directly into the camera and then there's the idea of a, of a change in, in, that, in that sense. But how does that that's a fairly uh, localized change. Uh, the, the audience uh, in the, the, the theater itself for, for cinema, um, does, their, does their practice of, of looking change in relation to that? And how does that, I mean, the, to talk about the idea of a camera consciousness seems to suggest to me that there is a, a generalized sense of, of, of culture which has altered how it acts or how it behaves. How, 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 was, how was that apparent? Yeah, um, so if we're thinking about, um, if we're thinking about early cinema, cinema for example, um, where, it, you know, the, the camera really opened up new ways of seeing the world. Um, so that was, that was the... That was the sense in which um, camera consciousness operated as, um, you know, in that, that traditional sense of um, being able to, to travel without moving, being able to see the world without, without moving the cinema, um, moving, you know, from your seat in the cinema, um, being able to, to have those kind of adventures and to, to see the world as it really is. Um, what we're... You know, I think that that idea of the camera and the the um, you know Walter Benjamin referred to it as the optical unconscious, the the, the sense that you can you can the camera reveals something of the world um, really stuck with us. I think for um, the best part of the twentieth century, and I think it began to change when cameras began to change when the technology itself began to change and started to do new things, actually operate in the world in different ways and act on the world in different ways. Um, if we're, you know, if you want a really good point of contrast, uh, if you think about the whole culture that emerged around selfies and, and selfie taking, it's, it's about, you know, thinking about what you can do with cameras differently, um, how, you can, how you can be part of the world um, and, you know, pr present yourself and extend yourself with cameras in a way that we haven't been able to before. And that's, that's due to the technological changes, the, the fact that the image becomes, um, you know, 
data and it becomes um, content to be shared and, and to move through networks. But in one sense, cameras have always been mobile, haven't they? I mean, that's, that's part of their, um, again, as you say, their value, the fact that they were quickly, the Lumiere brothers could quickly distribute them around and they traveled very quickly around the globe. And um, <clears throat> again, early classic cinema, they put them on the front of trams or cars and, and things like that. And that in itself has a sort of fascination. Um, you, you say in the book, something has shifted in how we make sense of seeing vision and visibility. So I suppose what I'm trying to get at is, is the sense, again, something like selfies. I, I had a conversation just a few months ago and with someone and in one sense, I don't, perhaps I've maybe used my camera to, to take a selfie once or twice in the entire time I've had it. I mean, it's not something I've really ever done and it's a generational thing perhaps in a certain way. Um, but I suppose what I'm trying to get at is really whether there has been or is the beginning of a, a, a fundamental shift or whether these are brief uh, transitory moments that we, we see in early cinema. There's, there's uh, the, the early stages where just filming people coming out of work was itself fascinating for those people to go and watch in the cinema. Very quickly that moves. Mobile cameras in different ways. Again, these things become uh, integrated into the sort of grammar of, of, of cinema and looking in different ways. And perhaps selfies came and passed and, and all the rest of it. Are we looking at just these moments of 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 uh, possibility that it, that it, that are quickly exhausted and move on? In what sense then is this new consciousness? Um, and how and, and and are we really internalizing these processes uh, to to the degree that that we can talk about a new consciousness? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know if you had anything to to add to that, Rowan. Well, I think I, I was thinking uh, while Anthony's talking about the other kind of trajectory from where that idea of a new camera consciousness came from, which is uh, the work of Margaret Mead and Gregory Bateson. And uh, in their work, what they were keen to achieve was a kind of a state in their anthropological studies where the participants, uh, willing or otherwise, became unaware of the cameras that were recording what they were doing and the idea being that once they became unaware at least in the minds of Margaret Mead and Gregory Bateson that they were capturing something um, you know significant that perhaps more so than if those participants were aware that they were being photographed and <clears throat> pardon me I think that um, if we carry that through to the present day and age, what we're seeing is a, a situation where, you know, cameras all are all around us, um, from surveillance cameras to uh, use of cameras in selfies and the like. Um, and I think one of the larger arguments in the book is that uh, these processes are increasingly automated to the extent um, to which people, you know, the average person is often not aware that this is happening, but uh, I, I guess their argument is that, um, on, you know, first of all, 
these these processes are at a societal level very significant and second second of all i think one of the arguments we make towards the end of the book is that um, you know we're at a stage where where it's perhaps you know important that we begin to think about what a new camera consciousness might might look like critically and also practically and in terms of the literacies that people might begin to develop mm-hmm. and are already becoming more conscious of when we think about the rise of um, faked photographs and deep fakes and the like, um, what might it mean to try to be critically aware as you know, an average um, citizen of what these processes involve and how to detect them and so forth. So um, I think that's part of the larger ambition of the book is to think through some of those trajectories. Mm. Mm. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, I think that's uh, there's no doubt. Obviously, the the sort of, if you like, the, the the density of 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 cameras in our lives, but it does remind me a little bit of of that Foucauldian notion of the panopticon. That if you if we presume we're being observed all of the time, then in one sense we just carry on as normal. There's a there's a certain point where the the difference between say Bateson and me would be that those they they would perhaps uh, I think you said they used um, lenses that you know they could disguise the fact that they were taking pictures essentially. But you're talking mm. about uh, people who pre-modern non-Western, however they would be described. So that's in one sense a way to try and in a slightly deceptive way. Of course, we're talking about um, cultures. Uh, in in the developed world, well, even globally, really, where people are are, are much more aware of these things. But does it does it change behaviour? I suppose is my question, really, because yes, we know that someone can be taking photographs of us, but we have uh, perhaps I, I, I live in Sweden, so perhaps we have slightly more stringent laws around publication of private information and and, and things like this, and and. Uh, regulation around the taking of of what might be considered private uh, in that way, but I don't I don't sense that that there is a change in in that sense in people's behaviour. They they and that's what I'm getting at with this idea of of consciousness in a way. Mm. Yeah, look, uh, there's a couple of aspects to that. I think I think behaviour, well, I feel that behaviour is, is changing uh, in the sense that we're, um, you know, if we're talking about the Western developed world um, or even developing world, the, essentially the, the smartphone um, consuming world and the social media consuming world, which is, you know, the vast majority of... Um, of many countries, and you know, I, I think there's there's a kind of um, emotional sense in which we're aware of the power and the uses of cameras that are multiplying. Um, that we can use um, images in different ways. I mean, we see it with um, you know activist use of images. That that was kind of the the first. Um, major revelation of the use of mobile cameras was well we can actually record things from our perspective we can we can multiply the perspectives that we're that we're um, 
that we're seeing the world around us through um, and we can share those perspectives. And, you know, like I I think, um, you know, to me that's the sense that we're beginning to see this um, new capacity, I guess, to use um, to, to... to relate through cameras. And that's where we see this, the, this sort of cultural shift, I guess, in terms of visibility and the uses and importance of images um, or the way that images are becoming important um, socially. So I suppose there's a distinction, I think, as, as, as you made reference to there, as you say, perhaps there are more, more in one sense, the democratization means there's more images circulating and from different perspectives but a key part of what you're arguing then is this notion of an automated vision where the 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 importance here is the shift away from sort of human agency to something automated um could you say something about that that idea then because i think in one to me that that does connect very um, clearly with a whole realm of, um, of, of, sort of, of sort of significant change in one sense, things that we won't even be aware of. In that kind of block, black box technology idea, it's like, well, we know something's going on, but we, we're just not able to understand it anymore. And we certainly can't right. intervene in it. Um, so could you say something about that, that side of it? Yeah, sure. I mean, so where we're going with this idea of camera consciousness and and what we've been talking about is essentially um, we're beginning to see the the value of of both cameras and of the images that are produced um, through camera technologies. And, you know, that value translates in all sorts of different ways. Um, But most importantly, it translates as visual data of different sorts. you know, that, that in the sense that um, all of the billions of selfies that are taken are also the material that helps to train um, facial recognition systems. Um, it's, you know, every, every um, uh, dash cam camera on a car helps to train um, the systems that, that run um, automated vehicles, for example, because, um, it's translating that that visual material into data that can be read and understood. So, so that automation part is is the this the end point that that you know is really the locus of what we understand as the new camera consciousness. That that um, cameras are, are able to act because they're translating the world as as um, as visual data, and you know they can act on the basis of that data. And I think just to add to that, they're often acting independently of human intervention in, in many, many instances. And that's what's um, particularly significant, I think. Yeah, I think, I think culturally we, um, you know, as I said, we understand the, the, this, this value. We understand the, the power that, that comes with that, with being able to see um, the world through images and the power that, that comes with what we can do with images. Um, but, yeah, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. <laughs> sure. I mean, <clears throat> the 
I mean, I'm very interested in this idea of of power in this regard because I think um, it's it's a really through certainly through the through the 20th century since the beginning of photography really there's been an articulation of the 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 possibility of uh, surveillance and repression which these technologies can facilitate. But I always think back to uh, you know having lived through the the, the 70s and 80s. I think back to the the the, the East German regime, you know, and the Stasi and the, the fact that they had a third of their population spying on the, the, the others and hidden cameras and all of these kind of things. And that the sheer volume of, of, of information in that sense, kind of data that they collected, but it doesn't stop ultimately the, 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 the overthrowing of a regime in that kind of way. And similarly, Counter to that, I look at say the we have the Derek Chauvin trial in America at the moment. We and the idea of that police are wearing body cams and things like this. It doesn't seem to change <laughs> the the culture of um, violence towards particular uh, groups in in society. So even though we have the ubiquity of of cameras and things like this, so I suppose, and I think this is something that you touch on that. The point is, is that currently there is the end point of, say, the Chinese system of facial recognition are, you know, banks of, of humans filtering through this material uh, in the mm. same way that you can have the Stasi with vast amounts of information. But unless someone is, is sifting through that and acting upon it, then ultimately it's, it's, it's bigger. So I suppose my question is really whether... Um, I, I'm just, I, I'm always aware, I'm, or I, I suppose I'm just sensitive to the idea that there's an overstating of repression and there's an overstating of resistance and that essentially the dynamic is at the end of the day, what's going what's gonna to change, for instance, the, 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 the Turkish government regime and its policing is not going to be drones. It's going to be, you know, um, the, 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 the long-standing idea that until you get bodies on the street and, and, the scale of something overturns the, the the repressive regime. But do you? I mean, in that sense, do you see that there is something something different now? Because I think the example of the Chinese system uh, is a, is is very important because clearly, what is it very perhaps even very explicitly being developed there is social engineering, and it's and, and you know, uh, but. Does it again? Does it change those those basic processes of of social behaviour and, uh, and? Yeah. Look, I think I think the the uses. I think it's it's completely fascinating the the use of facial recognition technology in China um, as part of you know what's sometimes referred to as a social credit system, but um, you know is ultimately a system of interconnected surveillance forms of surveillance, which are often people, you know, often driven by people in neighbourhoods being, um, you know, the, essentially the, the neighbourhood watch um, individual. I, I, I don't think we claim to be experts in that space and we have colleagues working um, working on in, in that area on the ground, um, you know, doing ethnography, and I think that's the work that needs to be done. Um, I think the way that cameras feature in um, power arrangements and power systems 
is completely um, embedded in place and culture and time and history. So yes, the, the use of um, cameras and other forms of surveillance and information gathering in, you know, in, um, uh, um, in Russia or in Germany, um, uh, post World War II is very different to, to the way that that emerges and unfolds over time. And, and, and I think we can, we can understand that, that, you know, we've, we've absolutely moved away from that kind of repressive regime, um, of, um, capture and record and then act, um, I absolutely agree that you don't overthrow a government on the basis of a drone, you know, capturing um, police brutality in, um, as in, in happened in Turkey. Um, but I think, I think all of these things contribute and I think they're part of the, the culture and context where these political activities are happening and they're the medium through which these political um, activities are happening. Um, so without the drone, you know, we get a different picture. We 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 um, we miss some of the picture. Some of the data isn't there. So that's why I think we we continually come back to this idea of, um, you know, the history of the use of cameras as visual as as in some way as instruments of um, visual data capture has been unfolding in interesting ways over the over the last 50 60 70 years um, and it's playing out now more in a commercial sense in the west um, so it's it's more about what are the applications that that can be made of um, the enormous amounts of visual data um, so police surveillance um, and machine vision in in use of police um, uh, that, that underpins police use of um, that technology is, um, you know, it's 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 a commercial um, uh, situation. It's a, it's it's about making money. It's about finding profit, finding ways of of profiting from um, technology that you know is going to be a no brainer for police if it can help them do what they do more efficiently. I think I'd add to that too um, that uh, in in developing the book and writing the book, we were both quite conscious of these questions and um, <clears throat> very particularly, I guess, of the whole kind of Foucauldian panopticon kind of you know take on on this sort of um, this sort of area of research around. Uh, you know, ubiquitous camera use. Um, and we were kind of cautious about taking that path and uh, reworking or, or taking a kind of a fairly obvious, what might seem a fairly easy path of, you know, there's cameras everywhere, it's recording everything we do, this is all bad, to trying to get at something that we both thought was a more productive uh, lens, given that there's a wealth of work that covers that sort of territory already, um, to take a, a slightly different kind of approach to think about um, 
the automation of these technologies and what that means for the data that they generate and what that means for our relationship to that data as you know, citizens as much as researchers um, and what it means that many of the uses of that data, yes, they happen with the involvement of humans, but in other cases, they're happening independent of that. So these are the sorts of questions that we were, I guess, uh, trying to find frameworks for thinking about and mm -hmm. placing more centrally in the book. Yes, I think, I think the idea of uh, the, the, the facial... Uh, the facial recognition technology and, and what that connects with, I think is a very important area. You start the chapter with a, with a quote there from uh, Deleuze and Guattari on faciality. I did, did consider the idea that of asking you to explain that chapter in the book to me, but perhaps that might take too long, but there is something, um, there's something very, Perhaps because our, our the, the face is the, our primary mode of, of interface as, as humans and perhaps even as, as animals in that regard. So the, the, it goes to the very substance of of how we relate to, to others, and I think that's and 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 I think that's part of what that for Deleuze and Guattari that chapter is about the 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 notion of coding and and uh, difference and, and variation and measurement in that sense from that. I suppose my question, my first question would be, um, again, perhaps with reference to Foucault there, but often repressive technologies are introduced on, on the basis of a stated good, you know, uh, some, 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 some benefit as such. What, what are the, are there, are there uh, indications as to how this technology is can be introduced and made acceptable to us through through something very beneficial. I mean, it, it, yes, I mean, the idea of policing and profiling, I mean, that generally is understood, I think, with fairly negative connotations in general, perhaps. But are there other ways in which actually, because as you say very clearly, what you argue in the book is that technology is not good or bad. It, it, it moves between these things. It opens up possibilities as well as closing down on others. Um, so is there something within the facial recognition system that that offers that? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm, it, it's it's uh, it's one of the the uses of um, camera technology and particularly um, you know machine vision that is I think most complex. Um, there is an ambivalence, but you know there's there's always an ambivalence with with the with the way that these technologies can play out um but with facial recognition you know i mean we have to we have to own the fact that the vast majority of uses of it are um not very beneficial to the public at large um or at least not understood that way however you know the flip side of the use of the the kind of invasion of privacy that that um, um, facial recognition technology signals to a lot of us, and particularly to to critical um, data scholars and and surveillance studies scholars, is the sense that um, you know security and um, and happiness and and trust 
and all of those things that come with uh, living in a space that, um, you know, is well governed is something that, that most people, you know, really <clears throat> crave and, um, and desire. Um, so wherever, wherever there are surveys done about the use of, of um, facial recognition technology, um, the results are usually, you know, not, not as um, straightforward as you would, as you would imagine, um, especially reading, you know, reading the negative press. Uh, so it, it's often a case that, um, you know, the, the complaint is actually that there weren't enough cameras, that, that we missed the face of the perpetrator or the, the um, you know, the violent offender. Um, we, we didn't capture it in time. We didn't have the technology in place to, to read the vast amounts of um, visual footage and, and data to, to stop the, um, you know, terrorist event happening or it's whatever it is. Collided. Yeah, it's too pixelated um, and we haven't solved that problem of definition and resolution yet um, to be able to read the face better. Um, and if you want the, the kind of alternative narrative to, to that sort of evil use of facial recognition technology, there's, there's plenty of it in the, the sort of CSI um, television landscape where it's all about yeah, finding, the, finding the perpetrator. Um, there's a fascination. There's always been a fascination with reading faces. And um, it's one of our kind of primary um, human, physical, emotional, affective um, modes of communication. Um, there's also, and, and there's also some really interesting work being done around um, uh, autism studies and the way that, you know, um, neurodiversity, um, neurodiverse individuals don't necessarily read um, and understand faces in um, typical ways. And, you know, the kind of technologies that we can use to, to perhaps counteract that or to, to assist um, in terms of, yeah, assistive technologies. So I think, I mean, again, just to think about this idea then of how these things become normalized or, or perhaps uh, introduced. Um, I'm thinking of in, in my own experience last year, for instance, um, uh, my younger children were uh, playing with their older brother who, and, and on his phone, then he was able to, there were the software that can change their, can give them, you know, funny hats or turn them into animals and, and different things like this, that presumably works on the basis of some kind of facial storing faces and, and things like this for me i think about how even though i'm you know it's not something i've opted in as such consciously anyway uh, on on my on my macbook that my photographs now are organized in terms of people and things like this so is there a, is there a way in which actually again we we uh, Certainly, certainly, with say the younger generation, you talked about selfies and things. I mean, is there a way in which this is becoming more integrated and ubiquitous, and and sort of you know we we willingly engage with it? Is is that also part of this process in that way? Is there a way in which they are? Uh, do any of us ever read the the agreements that we click accept on and things? But you know, and are they creating vast? 
is this being used? Is this, this information in, in, in one way, not necessarily to target us as named people, but to, to improve the feedback tech processes, the technology and things like this? Is that also part of how this could, because the, 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 very much the strength of your book is the way in which we're at a point at which everything's now being integrated and interconnected. And so this can be connected to, to this kind of processing can be connected. And of course, things like Google, Facebook, um, Amazon, you know, these are global transnational organizations outside seemingly of, of, of national governance often. Um, is that where, in one sense, a, a real uh, danger or, or, or certainly an ethical question is, 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 is present? Yeah, there's there's a lot there's a lot to that question actually. I think um, I think there's um, you know cultural interests in the sense that yeah I think I think a lot of us not just young people um, uh, love to to play with faces um, with mobile phones. They're they're designed with amazing front facing cameras now for a reason because it's such a draw card for. Um, for what makes a, a phone sell, um, the the all of the apps that that have been produced over the last couple of years, last few years, um, FaceApp was probably the the most well known one. Um, have done an amazing job of integrating um, machine vision techno- technology, the, the same technology that that um, that. It, enables the computer to read and understand the face and then organize it, you know, in terms of photo albums and, and things like that, um, to overlay, you know, the face with, with age, um, with, you know, with a gender mask or, or whatever. Um, the, this is a generative use of the image. So it's transforming the image into data um, and then generating um, a new version of itself on the basis of that data and of um, on the basis of the the huge data sets that are built up through the use of these technologies, so it's it, it kind of comes into it. And yes, I think that that sort of normalizes some potentially dangerous um, practices uh, in the sense that we're we're giving a lot over to to these um, app developers and startups and sometimes big companies and corporations, the big tech um, corporations. So. You know, I think I think where that goes is um, tricky. I think when we when we collectively find out. So with FaceApp, for example, um, there was a point where it you know it all it, it went from um, being everywhere and being spoken about in in every blog post and news article and and BuzzFeed um, listicle and whatever to to just dropping off the face of the earth because um, some revelations came out around, um, you know, the, the data security issues um, involved in, in um, ge- use of the geopolitical app. Geopolitical issues. And geopolitical issues. It was a Russian, um, you know, Russian startup. And just purely on the basis of that, um, you know, scepticism, doubt, fear about, the face as data, the invasion of privacy that comes with that, um, yeah, sort of followed. Um, so yes, there's there's huge there's huge concerns with that in the US. 
At the mo- uh, just in the last few weeks, I think it was a, a month or so ago, there was a, there was a big case um, that the FTC ruled that an app, and I can't remember the name of the um, company, but it was an app that was a, a photo editing app um, that was, you know, storing huge amounts of facial um, image data um, and wasn't all that successful as a photo editing app. So shifted its business model to start to develop and train um, machine vision facial recognition technology and started to sell that to um, military and um, to anyone who would buy it essentially. And the FTC stepped in and said that not only, you know, was that a, a kind of breach of the of the um, consent that was given by users of the app um, and that they had to close down, but they had to destroy all of the models that were developed on the basis of, of that, um, that data and that training so they couldn't operate um, using, you know, that value. So w- we've kind of thought about this issue of facial recognition through this idea of value capture, you know, it's it, which is a, a business and marketing, um, business management essentially um, concept um, where you're looking at the, the kind of activities that um, um, that you can you can do as a business or um, uh, resources that you can invest in, um, things that you can build, and the additional value that comes with that. So you know that's that's this idea that in producing all of these um, selfies or or enabling selfies um, through an app that that does a good job of of editing or whatever. Um, we get this additional value. And the additional value is actually the the building and training of the systems that can use that for um, interesting, different kind of facial recognition um, and generative purposes. Yes, I think there's I think there's a lot of anxiety around this, isn't it? I mean, our face is our identity, both in terms of what's on the passport allows us to move but also our very sense of self. And as you say, part of the idea of technologies that that can can change the face in terms of aging and different things. I'd like to move on to the uh, work then that you include around drones, because I think, again, this um, develops uh, uh, all sorts of important ideas then around this idea of machinic vision, because fundamentally, as you very clearly point out, and and what strikes it about me is the the sort of the shift into what you might call a non-human vision or an inhuman vision of of drones in that way. I I've, I come to it as I say from from say film and television studies, and and, and and of course in recent years the way in which the the drone shot has become ubiquitous within openings of serial dramas often. Um, to, to indicate uh, landscapes and things like this. Um, but it also connects with, uh, obviously, clearly ideas of, of, of power in different ways. One of the TV series, for instance, that I've, that I've worked on in, in the last couple of years is the Israeli series Fowder, and they often have drone shots to, to indicate the... Uh, the dominance, if you like, of the this perspective and the technological superiority and the superiority which which flows from that in all sorts of other ways. 
um, in that regard. Um, firstly, then I'd like to just, as, as we did say with the, with the camera consciousness, uh, again, from cameras in balloons to the early aircraft and things, and Virilio talks about this in terms of the, the, the military aspect of aerial photography. Um, what is, what's in that media archaeological sense, what, you know, what, what, what components are, uh, continue across all of these? And, and I think very clearly there is, there's something very new about the drone and the drone perspective. Um, uh, but, but as I, yeah, I just think it's useful. Is, is, there, is there something which flows between all of these and then something qualitatively different? Yeah, um, yeah, that's that's always a, a really good lens to think through um, technology development. I think, um, I think uh, you know, I think the the interesting aspect of what Virilio was talking about with cameras in war was, um, you know, the the whole idea of advantage that you get you get some sort of advantage by being able to see in a way um, and make visible, um, you know, enemy positions and and defenses and whatever in a way that the opposition or enemy can't or isn't able to do um i think that that sort of gave way over time to this idea of asymmetrical transparency um the idea that you know power really comes from being able to see but not being being able to be seen um so seeing without being able to be seen um and then i think that the shift with drones is you know partly in um and and essentially this is this is kind of what what got me interested in this idea of camera consciousness that the shift with drones is really that there's something important about the visibility of the drone itself the 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 object of the drone that it carries this um yeah machinic power and um, being aware of it is is really quite important in in war, of course, or in um, uh, combat zones like in Afghanistan um, and elsewhere. Um, the you know the the drone's visibility is sometimes the important aspect of its work, um, and sometimes it's important for it to be invisible. Um, so, so that play of visibility is embedded in the technology itself. And the other aspect of it, I think, is that, um, you know, drones are unpredictable aerial vehicles. Um, and, you know, you can, you can kind of bring this imagination or this, this issue into um, everyday drone use as well in um, you know recreational drone use. Um, one of the one of the the issues with it um, and one of the ways that it's regulated is through its unpredictability in terms of falling from the sky, um, you know, um, <coughs> creating a, a nuisance, being in the road, um, being in the wrong place at the wrong time, um, all of those kind of things. Uh, as well as all of the other things that have brought that, that have come with camera technology, um, which is the privacy um, invasion and, and all of that, the the clearly the area um, since the the time of balloons, you know, the fact that that was one of the, the for France, you know, 
a couple of hundred years ago was to to get that that um, perspective from the sky, that 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 visual perspective on the city that um, that you couldn't get in any other way. Clearly, imagining the the kind of God view, which is the way that drones are often um, discussed. So I think there's a whole heap of issues there that um, you know that I think what 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 has changed is that the, the motility of the camera, the, its ability to move, you know, multi-directional um, um, ways uh, and with with a sense that, um, that you know, that, that, that opens up for visibility and for vision. It, it, it's almost as if, you know, we, we just get this, um, sense that if you're buying a drone, you're buying a different form, a different way of seeing the world, um, and that's the that's often the, the attraction to it. So I, I really like. Um, I'm really interested in the the racing drone culture that that explores that sense of point of view um, in a way that it's almost superhuman. Well, it is superhuman. You know, the the speed that these things move. Um, their agility, their ability to move through and between buildings and trees and all of those kind of things is fascinating to to watch, but also that's part of the the culture and um, the the interest in it. Definitely, the there there is there is a fascination there. I think um, uh, one of my children has a, you know got bought a drone and you it can connect to the camera. Uh, you, you know, you can connect the camera on the drone to your phone and, and things like this. And there is, there's, there's definitely something fascinating and kind of empowering about it in that way. Um, I'm thinking as well, uh, just to just to go back a little bit. Uh, you mentioned the film, for instance, uh, "Eye in the Sky," which I saw a few years ago. And uh, as you point out, which I, I very much noticed at the time, they have that. Um, they have a a drone which is i think either a fly or a bug or something in that film yeah. which i presume a is a is a just any a speculative imaginative thing rather than anything real and you do link to to some of the research around this um so I, i'm I, I just want to explore a little bit about this idea then of because if we think about say the balloon as as the first rudimentary drone point of view uh for 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 us as humans what this offers is a bird's eye view for the first time perhaps so there's a we cross over into that that realm of 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 non-human or the animal in that sense and i you know to me actually and this is where i think there is something very very powerful around the drone idea because it it is precisely it's non-human quality that uh that 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 draws our fascination at, at least one of those things uh, could you say something about that i mean does that do you think that yeah. is an important part of that process yeah for sure i call it the the creepy thingness of drones you know the 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 sense that we have that that it's a um uh, an animate form of some sort, uh, almost like a living being. And, and I think that comes from, um, you know, more than the movement, I think it comes from the vision, 
I, I think it's the, the the fact that it's driven by um, some sort of vis- visual mechanism, um, whether that's you know connecting to a phone or a first person view headset, um, or it's automated and many of the the functionalities of um, of good quality um, drones uh, carry that automation with them, um, the return to base, the, the automatic landing, et cetera. So the more that they're automated, the more they feel creepy and they have that, that effective element to it. I think... Can I just interject? And I think that's yeah. also why they can be so frustrating to uh, bystanders as well because they, they have this kind of... Um, you know, creaturely dimension to them. Now, if you're walking alone on a beach and you suddenly notice one above you buzzing, or if you're standing at a waterfall in New Zealand that's beautiful and quiet until you notice the drone right above you and it breaks the silence again because of its, you know, it's hovering and it's buzzing, mm. it kind of draws your attention to, to these sort of insect-like aspects of this, this thing. Yeah, and... and- What's fascinating about the research around drones, you know, for the last 20 or 30 years, it's, it's actually a long military, mostly military research um, in the US, is that um, those aspects of insect behaviour and animal behaviour are always built into, um, into the research program. So um, the, the, the kind of work around um, coordinating drones in terms of swarming activities is um, is a huge part of its history. Uh, it, the, and, and the experimentation around the different kinds of perception um, that, that go with drones as well is is a big part of that. And a lot of that is is directly linked to um, animal studies and insect studies and insect perceptual system studies. And I'll just add that that's something that we also um, trace through the development of um, autonomous vehicles. That same language permeates mm. the the development of those visual technologies as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. There, as you say, when you talk about the buzzing of the drone, there is that sort of affective quality to it, where perhaps perhaps we we're sensitive. You know, as human animals to to buzzing in a certain kind of way, and this triggers something perhaps in in that way. I think uh, you say in the book that, um, or or perhaps Anthony, you, perhaps you said this uh, in, in one of the articles which which worked its way into the book. The dr- the drone brings to the scene new mental connections. What, what, what are these mental connections that, that the drone introduces in this kind of radical yeah. way? Yeah, look, I think, I think um, this is the, the sort of germ of the idea of camera consciousness, really. It's, um, and, and I was thinking about it mainly um, um, after looking at a lot of the, the protest footage um, in a number of places, in Poland, in, in um, Turkey, in... Um, in Thailand as well, in, in Bangkok. Um, and uh, thinking about the way that the, the individuals on the ground, um, particularly when they were the ones in control of the, the drones, um, often makeshift devices that, that were put together. Um, 
thinking about the way that it changed the relationship between what they did on the ground, how they acted, um, what they saw, so what they could, how they could counteract, you know, police movement and everything was um, was really key. And it sort of, yeah, it it struck me as interesting. It, I was in Bangkok um, during uh, one of the coups. Uh, where there was a lot of movement on the ground and there was a lot of drone activity. It wasn't regulated. Um, you know, this was sort of pre-regulation, early days for drone technology, really. And Bangkok is a really interesting city because it's a city of layers anyway. It's, you know, high rise, it's, um, it's sky rail, it's, you know, many overpasses. Um, they can't build underground uh, because of the... the um, the aquifers and and just the way that the city works. So so you're always on a layer somewhere. You're always on a level. Um, and part of part of the way that the the activity was happening there was mobilising um, through these kind of lines of sight. Um, and we could just see evidence of the way that that was feeding in through the um, you know sort of amateur drone footage sometimes in a way that served um, the police and military um, and sometimes in a way that, that helped um, the protesters on the ground. So it was, it was really about then thinking about, um, yeah, that, those sort of mental relationships that, that bounce off, that they have to move backwards, back and forwards between the machines in our lives, the technology in our lives, and the way that that was changing so rapidly, that's what I was kind of interested in. Uh, and I think, yeah, the, there's lots that has changed since then, particularly around regulation um, of drone use in, in urban spaces and, um, uh, you know, licensing and all of those things. And I think that's a reaction to the, the potential that was un, unleashed at the time of, of using drones in those ways. Sure. Yeah, I think there's, uh, um, I think there's, 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 a, there's a lot to kind of, to think about there. And perhaps as you say, we're sort of perhaps only at the beginning of, of this becoming more dispersed in, in different ways. Um, I'd like then to, to, to finish with, uh, as, as you end the book then, where you talk about, automating visual literacies and mm. and so visual literacy is is a concept we're generally uh, familiar with in um from, from semiotics in the the 60s and 70s onwards in a way um mm. how, what, what do you see then as the um useful and sort of ethically aware changes that we need to to introduce um, in terms of of course we can there's always issues of regulation and privacy and different things um, I, with things like drones and things you know, I'm sure governments will legislate against them very quickly if they become a little bit too useful for protesters and things or they get shut down in different ways but um, Certainly, then you talk about things like deep fakes, and I looked at some of the links that you had on there of things, and this goes to the heart then of of issues of of sort of truth and news values and different things. Um, mm. 
what 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 do you see as the as as p- possible uh, changes that we need to to make in terms of our awareness and familiarity and perhaps even sort of competence levels do we do you know to be an active citizen do we need a now a much higher level of 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 both awareness and dexterity with these things in different ways or, or you know how does this play because clearly that will that maps onto all sorts of issues of ability disability uh, age and on all sorts of things what what do you see as important here yeah um there's look probably the the key thing to think about is um is that as um, machines are becoming more capable at seeing and reading the world around them, and that's that's the trajectory. That's the that's the goal of machine vision. It's about that sort of general awareness, being able to um, to read, to to see, to understand, and to have an awareness of of the objects, um, of the faces, of the people, the things you know in the scene about them. We have to we have to completely rethink this idea of literacy and visual literacy in particular, um, but I think it goes deeper than that. I think it's also just a machine literacy. Um, it's also about natural language processing, for example, and and you know what some of the powerful um, natural language processing models can do now in terms of creating text and creating articles and and creating material. So. We, we thought about this in terms of deep fakes because this is an area where literacy is is being undone. It's being completely contested. So if you, if you look at any of the work that's being done around um, either creating or detecting deep fakes, you just see this arms race. Um, you can't detect deep fakes easily because they work on a system that competes against itself to be better um, than, you know, to fool itself essentially into appearing real. And so it's really difficult to, to build a new system that can then detect that, um, that forgery um, or the artificialness of it. So this is, this is where I think there's so much more work to do um, from this point. Uh, and we have, you know, a research program of working in this space around data literacy, um, AI awareness, um, algorithm awareness. There's lots of work being done in this space for a reason, I think. It's, it's just super important now. Um, this, is, this is where we see the, the, the kind of trajectory headed. Sure. So, Rowan, I mean, what, what do you, you talk about the idea of an inclusive AI at, at the end of the book there. What 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 do you see then as the um, the parameters of of what an an inclusive uh, artificial intelligence or automated intelligence system might be? <laughs> Any thoughts? No, no, I, I'm, I'm going to handball that one to Anthony on the phone. Look, I I. Um, I think we're thinking about this because I do a lot of work personally in in digital inclusion generally. So this is this is you know ground up kind of digital inclusion, um, getting people online who who haven't had a, a a work history of having any sort of exposure to computers or technologies, thinking about that kind of coalface of 
of how we engage with technologies that are unfamiliar, um, sometimes completely scary and anxiety provoking. And so it kind of comes back to this idea of camera consciousness and the, the sort of fear and effective element that that technologies um, can bring with them, with with them, even though you know cameras are, are so normalised as as part of our life that, that they can disappear as well. Um, so an inclusive AI has to take into account, I think, um, all of the all of the um, the the structures that are in place that that work against. Um, these technologies working for us, um, being beneficial to us and including us in some way. So, you know, there's a huge amount of work um, done around AI bias. Um, the fact that cameras themselves aren't really well well developed to, to read dark skin tones, to, to adjust to the, to the variation in the way that they do to light skin tones. You know, that sort of level of... Um, technical capacity for cameras has a flow-through effect. You know, it has a, has a flow-through effect in terms of then um, how a person, an individual, a citizen will be treated by an automated system that, that is, is reading, um, you know, their face. So uh, there's, there's a huge amount of work being done in that space. Um, and I think, you know, potentially... Well, to sort of moving back to the, the facial recognition um, chapter, we looked at some of the, the data sets that have, been, that, that have been built over time and classified and coded um, uh, by, by humans, by a huge amount of labour that, that goes into this. The inclusive element, I think, is about, in, you know, involving those who... Um, who have most at stake, um, who are most vulnerable to those technologies and, and to, the, to the ills or the evils that, that those technologies can be, can be put. It tends to be in America, you know, African-Americans who are the subject of police use of facial recognition technology, for example. Um, and, you know, we know a huge amount already about the... the um, inequalities, the biases, um, the way that those systems are set up to, to, um, to target um, those individuals. In, in China, the, the use of the technology um, around identifying Uyghurs, Uyghur um, people, nationalities in, um, in crowded um, areas is another version of that. It's a, it's a way of channeling that technology towards um, you know, what we would see as misuse or, or um, um, bad uses of the technology. So I think we can shift that. Like we can, we can, we can completely turn the tables on, on that and say, well, how do we use the, this technology to um, target perhaps those who are um, suffering in a crowd or those who are fatigued in a marathon or you know, any sort of situation where it might actually um, lead to, to some benefit or to some good. But at, in the first instance, thinking about the, the data sets that train these systems, making sure that they're, um, they're not just representative, but they're, they're equal in that sense of um, what needs to be done to, to ensure that 
they're um, inclusive and that they're, they're producing benefit. Another area where this is an issue is in um, the use of facial recognition and other systems for employment services. So in the US in particular for um, vetting new staff and new employees, um, it, you know, there, there's a huge amount of inequality built into the systems that's been pointed out, it's been assessed, you know, and, and audited by, um, yeah, a lot of people. So, you know, if we can, if we can think about what are the what are the elements of an inclusive AI? It would be addressing all of those things and turning the tables on the the sort of power relations that um, you know that we don't want to play out. Sure. Yeah. Do you have? Are you aware of any work? I mean, in terms of your specific location in Australia and Aboriginal culture and the kind of dynamic within Australian society, is there any particular work being done in in that regard in terms of inclusivity? Yeah, I'm not aware of any actually. And, I, and look, I don't think a lot of the, the technology is being developed from the ground up here. Um, but one thing that I would say is that, that, you know, race and ethnicity in Australia are very different to the way that to, to, to what they are in the US, in the UK, in other countries. Um, and so, you know, where we, where we might have similar sorts of issues in terms of um, uh, policing. Yeah, policing and you know, we certainly have those kind of issues. But in terms of um, how those issues play out, uh, they, they're always going to be slightly different. And I think that's one of the dangers of um, all automated systems and all AI technologies when they're imported, you know, um, from uh, situations that are... Uh, even if they're subtly different, and sometimes that's worse um, because you don't you don't get the same sort of um, yeah accuracy in that sense. Sure, yeah, good. Well, listen, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, it's a fascinating book, and uh, as as we've just I think evident through the conversation, uh, many important issues. So, I look forward to your next publication in this in this area as these things develop and uh, so once again thank you very much thank you thanks john it's fantastic